Hey, good morning, everybody. You glad to be in New Spring today? I mean, first of all, you're just glad to be in a cool room any place. Is that right? Um, let me just say this. I appreciate so much all you guys do at the 1115 service uh, to navigate the parking lot and everything else. And, and I know our church continues to grow even in the summer, which is just sort of extraordinary. But if you ever would like to maybe have a little bit easier experience our newest service is at 6.30 on Saturday evening, and it's not quite as large, a little easier to get into, and the classes uh, for your kids are not quite as big. So if that's ever an option for you, I know many of you volunteer in other services and so on, but if that's ever an option, you might want to explore that because it's, it is a little easier to get in and out of. Uh, we're at week five in our series, The Contest. It's all about spiritual warfare, and I know by now if you're a new springer or if you've been part of these series uh, the series, you're familiar with the verse that we've started with. In fact, this whole series has revolved around two verses of Scripture. One is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where the Bible tells us we don't fight against people. We never, if you're a Christ follower, you have no enemies who are people. Our struggle, the Bible says, is not against flesh and blood. And I just stress this and stress this and stress this because I know how hard it is for us to really get this into our living. It gets into our nomenclature faster than it gets into our actual life. Because when people make themselves or they try to become our enemies, it's so hard for us not to look at them as an enemy. So your, your, your enemy is never people. You're never fighting against people. If you're fighting against somebody today, you are wasting your time, you're wasting your emotion, you're wasting your energy. And the worst part about it, and I'll just put this on me and not you, I'm doing damage, okay? I'm doing damage. We, we don't fight against people. And, and if we could just get that, wow, it would change our world, and for those of us who are Christ followers, it would make our message so much more attractive. I really believe that one of the biggest mistakes that the church of Jesus Christ has made at large, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, is we've been right in our position, but we've been wrong in our disposition. You know, our enemies are never people. Enemies, your enemy's not your wife, your husband, your next door neighbors, your kids, your parents. Your enemies are not the people you work with. And even if you're a committed Christ follower, your enemies are not the people whose lifestyles are 180 degrees different from the Bible. We never fight against people. Never. You have no enemies today. Just Isn't that great to know? You have no enemies. But we do fight against, or I should say, no enemies that are human. We do fight against, the Bible says, and there are four terminologies there for, for demonic oppression. So we do have to fight against demons. And that's a little scary because... For those of us who look at the Bible and say, well, that's what the Bible says, it's a, little, it's, it's a little bit frightening because we think to ourselves, well, if I'm human and I have to fight in a spirit world, then it's not a fair fight. But as we're going to see in a few moments, it is not a fair fight. It's not fair to the enemy because God has given us divine weapons. And we've, we're in the, actually the fourth weekend of looking at the weapons that we have. But I know last week was a holiday, and many of you perhaps didn't get to be part of our service, but if you were here last week, we took the contest to a new place because we said that most of the damage that Satan does to us, you know, it's not cataclysmic damage that he brings into our lives. You know, I, I hope nobody leaves this, this service and you're afraid to go to sleep at night or you're afraid, you know, because really the fact of the matter is I don't think Satan really does damage to us in that way. I've said to you, you know, you don't have to fear stuff that goes bumping the night of your head, spinning around, or that kind of thing. That's just not the kind of warfare that Satan fights against us. Most of the damage he does, he gets us to do to ourselves. I, I, I think, I, I just assigned it a percentage of my life. Maybe I actually think I'm being conservative. I think 98% of the damage that Satan has done in my life, he has gotten me to do to myself. 
Satan is wicked, but he's not stupid. There's certain things that he knows about God that he leverages and uses against us. For instance, Satan knows that you harvest what you plant. In fact, if you learn scripture like I did with the old authorized version, you know that the Bible says you reap what you sow. Now, here's the thing. I'm planting seeds today that I'm going to harvest. And it doesn't matter how much God loves me, and he does love me. If I plant bad seed, I'm going to get a bad harvest. And we can say, well, God is a loving God. How could God allow this to happen to me? Just like gravity is a law that everything has to obey, harvesting and planting is part of God's universe. And I'm, every act I perform, every attitude I hold, every word I say, those are seeds. They're going to come back to me. God may love me very much. He may love you very much. But Satan knows I'm going to harvest what I plant. So if he can lure me into planting bad seed, he can watch me have a bad harvest and laugh all the way to the bank. He also knows that there's certain acts that have consequences. And again, it doesn't matter how much God loves me, and he loves me very much. But there are certain acts that have consequences. You know, here's the thing that gets me about our generation sometimes. People wind up at a destination, but they try to pretend they haven't been on the path that leads to that destination. Paths have consequences. Lives have consequences. Do I believe that God loves me unconditionally? I know he does. But if I get drunk and lose control of my automobile and slam it into a telephone pole and wind up with a physical disability as a result of that accident, it's not about God not loving me. It's about actions have consequences. And so Satan knows that. And so if he can lure me into an action as a negative consequence, again, he knows God loves me, but he can laugh at me all the way to the bank. And this is perhaps the most sensitive of all places to go. Even though God loves us very much, if the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that there's certain things that God's children can do that God just can't overlook. Uh, every parent here today understands that. You know, you, you want the best for your kids. You want a happy home environment. But there's certain things your kids can do that you just can't accept. I, I never had any of our boys do this, but, you know, if any of the boys have disrespected their mother, I love them very much there's going to be a problem. And, and there are certain things that people can do that God can't accept. And Satan knows that. If he can lure me into doing one of those things that God can't accept, then he can get me to do damage to, to myself. So let's just start with that assumption today because I think most of us would, would, would come to that pretty easily. Most of the damage that Satan does, he gets us to do to ourselves. It's a battle. Now, for some of you have military backgrounds, or you just like to study military history. If you're going to be under attack, there are two very important questions that you need to know, or you need answers for. Number one, you need to know, where is the attack going to take place? Where will the battlefield be? And number two, what will the nature of the attack be? What will be the strategy that is employed by the enemy to attack me? Okay, that's true. We're all going to fight Satan. We're all going to fight the dark side. We know clearly what he's going to try to do is to get us to do damage to ourselves. Where is the battle going to take place? Well, the battle's going to take place in your mind and in my mind. The mind is the high ground. The mind is the control center. If Satan can get us to think wrong, he can get us to act wrong. This is spelled out for us by no one less than, than Paul, the great, great leader. And what a great guy he was. I mean, if you're holding a Bible in your lap, he wrote at least 13 of the 27 books in your New Testament. So, I mean, he's super Christian. Took the Bible to the known world. But I'm so glad the Holy Spirit allowed him to put this verse in the Bible about himself because it, it does make me feel a little better. 
He said, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Isn't it good to know that a legend like Paul said that? When I want to do right, I find myself doing wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me. Is that verse behind me? There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. Yeah, this is a Christ follower. This is a legend. This is a super Christian. And yet he's saying, I have this battle going on in my mind. Look at this. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Now, was Paul a believer? Yeah. Was he going to heaven? He's the one who wrote 2 Corinthians 5, 8 that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Here's a guy who knew he was a believer, and yet he said, I'm frustrated out of my mind because there's a war going on inside my mind, and Satan is leveraging the dark side, the sin that is still within me. In an extreme case, let me show you how Satan defeats people in the mind, in the battlefield of the mind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So in worst case scenario, someone who just refuses to accept the truth of God, Satan will eventually just pull the shutters down and the minds are completely blinded. The mind is a battlefield. We know what Satan wants to do. Jesus himself said it in John 10, verse 10. He said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what he wants to do in your life. And by killing, it's not just your physical body. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to kill your, your parent-child relationship. He wants to kill your opportunity. He wants to steal those things that are precious to you. He wants to destroy God's best in your life. And in order for him to prosecute his agenda, he's got to get you and me to think in the wrong way. Wow. So, where's the battle going to take place? It's going to take place in our minds. How's he going to attack us? We need to understand something about Satan. He's multifaceted in his pro approach, but he's kind of a one-trick pony. He's got one particular very powerful school of thought that he tries to lure us into damaging ourselves with. Now, again, if you were here last week, you got this. If, if you weren't here last week, you can watch the sermon on the Internet. But last weekend, we did something kind of interesting. We, we contrasted Satan's temptation of our first parents in the garden. They lost everything in Eden, Adam and Eve. And we saw how Satan lured them into doing wrong. And then we looked at the person the Bible calls the second Adam, Jesus, and how that Jesus got everything back for us that Satan lost, uh, that our first parents lost in the garden. Now, here's the thing. If we look at those temptations, if we're not careful, we'll make a fundamental mistake. We'll say, oh, the temptation with Adam and Eve, it was about the fruit. And the temptation with Jesus, that was like turning rocks into bread and jumping off a temple and falling down and worshiping. Those are just extraneous. What you have to look at was the core of the message to Adam and Eve and the core of the message to Jesus. And what you and I will discover if we look carefully is that the core was identical. Satan came after our first parents with a message, and he came after Jesus with the same identical message, and he is going to come after Mark, and he's going to come after you with this single message. Think about his temptation of Eve for a moment. Basically, he said to her, I mean, here is a woman who lives in a perfect environment, who's got a perfect body, 
I mean, she and her husband, Adam, are enjoying life and perfection. They're naked. They feel no insecurity. They're covered with the glory of God. They're enjoying eternal life. And they have everything that anybody could possibly want. And Satan comes along and says to her, forget about everything you have. That's one piece of fruit that you need. And then notice what he said to her. This This is the deal. Satan didn't say to her, why don't you eat this fruit and destroy your life? Because he would have never gotten anywhere with her. But here's what he said. Here's how he got in the door. He is saying, God doesn't love you, and God is not being good to you. Remember, he said to her, God knows the day you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him, and you're going to know what he knows. And God doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want to lose his position. And basically, what he got her to do was to doubt God's goodness. Now, this takes us to a a place we don't have time to develop, but that was the fundamental flaw with Satan before the world was ever created. That's the sin he committed. He basically got tired of supporting God. He got tired of glorifying God what he, like, as he was created to do. And he said, hey, I want to be God. And so basically, he said to Eve, God is not good. You got to just break out and do what you want to do. You can't trust God to take care of you. Well, what did he say to Jesus? <laughs> basically said, you're the son of God. God is your father. Look where following God has gotten you. You're in a wilderness, and you haven't eaten for 40 days. Your father must not care about you very much. I mean, look at what he's done. He's left you out here in the wilderness with the wild animals. You haven't had any food to eat. I care more about you than your father cares about you. Why don't you just command these rocks to be made bread? I'm interested in you. And and, and think about this. Here you are out in the wilderness, and you're staring down a cross. Look where you're headed. How can God love you and leave you in this environment? Why don't you just jump off the temple and prove to everybody that you're the Messiah? There's no reason for you to have nails in your hands and feet and thorns in your head. God must not love you very much. Well, that's how it sounded to Eve, and that's how it sounded to Jesus. Well, let me tell you how it's going to sound to you and me. It's going to sound something like this. Life isn't fair. You deserve better than this. Break out and get it for yourself. That is exactly what it's going to sound like. Now, it can, it can come in all different kinds of ways, but the battlefield's going to be your mind, and that's going to be the strategy. Life isn't fair. God's, God doesn't love you, or he wouldn't let you go through this. Break out and get it for yourself. Now, I know that when we're listening to this today, we're thinking, wow, that strategy can't be very successful with me. Yeah, it can. And let me tell you why. When Satan tells you that life isn't fair, that is a fact. And he will play that. He will use that. He will leverage that. And he knows how to pick his spots. I know I've told this story at New Spring before. One of the reasons I tell you stories like this is I want you to know you're not following a Christian superstar. I have to follow Jesus just like you have to. And I have weak moments in my life just like you have weak moments in your life. I don't remember if this was 05 or 06. It's starting to blend. When you get old like me, memories start to get fuzzy as far as exact times, but I remember what happened very clearly. It was back in the early days of the transition here at New Spring, when we were transitioning from becoming a very traditional church to becoming what we are today. And there were a lot of difficulties associated with that, and one decision would lead to another decision, and, and I would feel like, wow, we've sort of gotten, gotten past all the difficulty, and then a whole new round of difficulty would bring out. And, and I was thinking to myself, my goodness, I mean, I, I, I risked everything. I, I, I took a life of, of 
basically no controversy, and I pushed all the chips to the middle of the table and bet everything on God and what God wanted for this church. And in the process of time, it was like there were, there were moments that God had communicated to me that he was going to do certain things. That, and, and indeed, in time, God has done all those things and gone, as Ephesians tells me, way beyond my imagination. But I remember in one of the darkest parts of everything when things were still going badly and it seemed like I got bad news day after day after day. I was on my deck, I think about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and I remember just getting angrier and angrier at God. Have any of you, I don't mean have you ever been on my deck, but I mean have any of you ever been there? <laughs> I mean, you're just thinking. I mean, and I'm, and I'm saying, you know, God, you've promised to do these things for me, and I don't see them happening. And the more I thought about it, the angrier I got. And finally, I got so angry that with nobody else around me, I just yelled out loud, God, the Bible says you're my father. I've got three sons. I wouldn't treat any of my three sons the way you're treating me. Boy, a thunderstorm was coming up. If I'd gotten what I deserved, God would have just fried me on the spot. But he didn't. And I don't want to give you the wrong impression. God doesn't talk out loud to me. It's just a message in my spirit that I knew didn't come from me because I knew what kind of state I was in. Instead of God screaming at me, God just basically said to me, well, if you're not going to look to me for help, who are you going to look to? And a second later, I was on my knees on the concrete of my deck telling God how sorry I was. But here's the interesting thing, and the reason why I brought that up is this. If Satan were to come to me today after God has been so good to me and say, Mark, God's not being fair to you. I would say, oh, get out of here. Because today's a good day. I mean, 95% of my life is just fantastic right now. And, and I'm going to say, oh, don't, don't sell that somewhere else. But I'll tell you, after the last service, I just talked to a good friend who's wrestling with cancer. And cancer is really hitting him hard right now. And he's only got about 5% of his life that's working out right now. And it's, it would be hard for him. And that's all I'm saying to you is that Satan knows how to pick his spots. I mean, when he comes to you and says life isn't fair, he's basically stating something that is true. And there will be moments when life will feel less fair than other, other times, and he'll come along with the message, hey, life isn't fair. God must not love you very much. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let you go through what you're going through right now. Actually, I, I, I owe another pastor for what I'm about to tell you. Charles Stanley pastors in Atlanta. I've watched him, watched his ministry for 30 years. But he is, he's a fine Bible student. And Charles Stanley talked about thoughts that Satan introduces into our minds. The Bible tells us that his thoughts, and we'll talk about this next week when we talk about the armor. The Bible calls them fiery darts or missiles. And, and he fires his missiles at us. And, and what Dr. Stanley was saying, and he's so correct, he's saying... It's not a sin to have a thought of temptation in your mind. A temptation is a solicitation to do wrong, and Satan will do that. He said, you know, he said all of us are going to have those kinds of thoughts. It's not a sin to have a, a lustful thought. It's not a sin to have a thought flash through your head that, wow, if I were to lie, I'd get out of this. It's, it's not a sin to have a thought flash through your mind that said, you know what, if I got drunk right now, I would feel a whole lot better about the problems in my life. It's not a sin to have that thought flash through your mind. The problem comes when we allow that thought to stay there and maybe even begin to fantasize about it. And what Stanley said was, he said anytime we allow a thought of Satan to just stay in our head for a while, he said Satan gains a toehold. 
But when that thought goes from just, you know, fantasy to where we begin to think about acting on it and we let it stay there long enough to start strategizing about how we're going to act upon it, Stanley said that that toehold becomes a foothold. And the Bible makes that very clear about, let's just take the sin of anger. The Bible says it's not, it's not wrong to be angry, but when we let anger stay in our mind, listen to this. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. No, it's not a sin to have an angry thought cross flesh through your mind. It's a, it's a problem to let it stay there. Because when you let the wrong thoughts stay in your mind and you fantasize it, and you even get to the place where you start act, uh, thinking about how you're going to act on it, then Satan gets a foothold. And a, a toehold will become a foothold. And if we begin to act on it, it will become a stronghold. Here's what I've discovered about Satan introducing thoughts in my head. And I bet you've discovered the same thing. When the thought first crosses your mind, you're thinking, oh, I, well, yeah. But then you start thinking about it like I did, thinking about that night that God wasn't being fair to me. And we let it go around and around and around to where Satan gets a foothold. And then he begins to work. Now, here's the deal. At that moment, we're going to say to ourselves, I'm in control here. I can handle this. Have any of you ever allowed a thought to stay in your mind so long that after a while, instead of you handling it, it was handling you. Maybe just bitterness towards somebody. And you say, oh, I can let that go. I can, I can, it can come and it can go. Or maybe it's lust. Oh, I, you know, I, look, I, I just think about her sometimes, but I don't think about her all the time. I, I'm in charge. I, I, can, I can deal with it. I can handle this. But then there's that terrifying moment when you realize that you're not in control anymore, that that thought is in control of you. One of the oldest stories I remember reading, I remember telling the story when I was in my early 20s, so I know it's been a long time. But there were visitors at Niagara Falls who were watching the falls, and, and, and up, up the river there was a carcass of a dead animal, and an eagle swooped down. It was a very cold, frigid day. Eagles swooped down and began to feed on that carcass and suck its talons into the body of the carcass while it was feeding. But what it didn't realize was that the swirling cold waters were coming over the talons, and and its talons have frozen to the carcass, and the terrified visitors watched as the eagle came to the edge of the falls and began to beat his wings in order to, to lift off and fly away from the carcass, but he couldn't. And they watched as the eagle went over with the dead carcass over the edge of the falls. And I think sometimes that happens to people like you and me. And the thought comes, and it becomes a toehold, then a foothold, then a stronghold. Well, are we defenseless? I mean, after all, Satan is very powerful, and it is an unfair world. Are, is, are we defenseless? Is there nothing that we can do? Well, the second verse that we've built this series around tells us there is something we can do. The Bible says we're human. This is in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down strongholds. Yeah. So what is the weapon that we have to deal with temptation? This is the fourth week that I've talked to you about weapons. Week number one, actually, actually, that message and this message are the most personal for me. The first weapon that we saw was to submit ourselves under God's will, to decide that we're going to follow God's will, not our own plan. The second weekend, we talked about prayer. The third weekend, last weekend, we talked about the importance of accepting the authority of God's word in our lives. 
But this weekend, we're going we're gonna to call it part four of it's not a fair fight. We're going to call this strategic defense initiative. I look out on this audience, and you guys are you're pretty young. And when I use the term Cold War, Cold War there are going to be a lot of you that weren't around during the Cold War, and maybe the only thing you know about is from either reading or studying history. But after World War II, there were basically two superpowers in the world. There was the United States and its Western allies and the Soviet bloc. But we had an issue after World War II that was different from any issue that the world had ever faced before. We had nuclear weapons. And each of the superpowers had its own cadre of nu nuclear weapons. And, and there was a point at which the superpowers had enough of nuclear weapons to destroy the world several times over. And there was what was called brinkmanship back in the day of, 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 of diplomacy because there was the idea that both powers were at the brink and staring at each other and, and both nations basically, or both powers had a button they could push and start the nuclear war. But what everybody understood clearly was that probably there would be no winners in a worldwide nuclear war. And so thankfully no one pulled the trigger, but because we were in brinkmanship, the powers just basically added to their stash of nuclear weapons. And that is how things went until the late 80s. And then something came along called Strategic Defense Initiative. The critics who laughed at it called it Star Wars. But President Reagan believed in it, and the Soviets believed in it, which, as it turned out, was all that really needed to happen. Uh, none of us really knows if it's viable. None of, I mean, it, maybe it would work, maybe it wouldn't work. We don't know. But the idea of Star Wars was that if the, if the Soviets launched a nuclear missile, a nuclear-laden missile to the United States, we would send up another missile that would intercept it and blow it up in the air. And who knows? Maybe it was a pipe dream. I don't know. But I do know this. Whether or not that works in the military world, it certainly works in the spirit world. The Bible tells us that Satan sends his fiery darts or his missiles toward us, and you have a weapon that will blow it up before it gets into your mind. You ready to hear what it is? It's huge. And my issue that I have before me today is I'm scared that you're not going to think it's a weapon, and I'm concerned that you're not going to realize just how incredibly powerful it is because it just doesn't sound like a weapon. But here it is. The weapon is contentment. Well, contentment is a state of being at peace on the inside. The manifestation of it is joy. You know, here's the thing. If Satan is going to try to perform a sales pitch and lure you into something that's self-destructive, if you're content with what God is doing in your life, he doesn't have any place to work. See, he made Eve feel like that she was missing something. Even though she had a whole garden there, he made her feel like she was missing something, and she became discontented with God. The reason why Jesus blew him away in the wilderness was Satan said, hey, you're missing something. And Jesus said, I'm not missing anything. It's written, it's written, it's written. I'm okay. I'm following God's plan. And the Bible says when it was all over, the angels came and ministered to him. Let, let me just say something to you here today. We live in a world where marriages break up oftentimes because of infidelity. Guys, let me tell you, if you're contented with your wife, there's not a woman in the world who can lure you away. If you're contented with your wife and joyful that God has given her to you and she is your dream and it doesn't matter whether she's 25 or 52, it doesn't really matter. She is the love of your life and you're happy with her. 
There is not a woman in the world that can drag you away from your wife. Ladies, if you're content with your husband, if you're joyful in him, guys can flirt with you all day, and it won't make any difference. You are invulnerable. Before the missile gets in, you shoot it down. It's contentment, and it's powerful. It's powerful. Well, I always try to tell you guys, I, you know, I was born at night, but not last night. And I know how it's going to be because some of us are going to say, well, wait a minute, Mark. You don't know where I am right now. It's really cool for you to tell me to be content, but I'm vulnerable today. Things are not fair. And I just can't help but feel like something's missing in my life. Or I can't just wave a wand and pretend I'm happy when I'm not happy. Anybody, don't raise your hand, but anybody feel like that? Well, let me, let me tell you who among you who are the most vulnerable. Am I talking to somebody here today and just recently something's happened in your life? Well, forgive me for breaking a sentence. Most of us have issues that aren't right in our lives, but we're human and we have that marvelous thing called hope that maybe they'll be right. Maybe the marriage isn't working out today, but we hope it will. We pray that it will. Maybe we don't have money today, but we pray that we'll have it. Maybe we're sick today, but we pray that we'll get well. We have hope. But is there anybody here and you thought things were going to get better, but something has happened and now the door's closed, and your world's never going to be right again. It's become clear the marriage is finished. It's become clear you're not going to get well. If anybody is like that here today, then you may find yourself especially vulnerable with, vulnerable with the, the, the onslaught of Satan. So for anybody who's here who would say, Mark, I can't be content because I'm just missing something today and I feel like I'm missing something, or if you're in that second category and you say, Mark, my world is never going to be right again, let me take you to a very important verse of Scripture, and I'm just going to ask you to work with me. I, before I ask you to be content, I'm just going to ask you to work with me through this Scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We were here a couple of weeks ago. It has to do with this guy, Paul, that we talked about a few moments ago. He's trying to serve God. He's taking the Word of God to the world. He's standing up before kings and emperors and witnessing He's doing a great work, but all of a sudden, he's got something wrong with his body, and he's concerned about it. Let me read the verse to you. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, in other words, all these great things God was showing him, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I can't help myself. I'm a Bible student. And when I read the Bible, sometimes I read a verse and I say, slow down, Mark. Don't read that too fast. There's some stuff you shouldn't miss. When I read that verse, I get that feeling. So I start breaking it apart. And I, I look at some of the words that are in there. And one of the words that stands out to me is given. Paul said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Well, what does that word given mean? Because you see, there are verses in the Bible where the word given means God gave it to him. And I wanted to know, was that the word that Paul was using? Was he saying, God gave me a thorn in the flesh? I was kind of interested to find out that it's sort of a neutral word. Actually, what it means is I was handed this thorn in the flesh. Can I tell you today, whether you're the most devoted Christ follower or you're the most ardent atheist, it doesn't matter. Life is just going to hand you some stuff. I mean, there are some people that feel like, well, if I'm a great Christian, then I'm never going to have any problems. Like, could I just, I don't want to pop your bubble this morning, but I just want to tell you, life's going to hand you some junk. 
And, and here's this great guy, Paul, that, you know, is writing books of the New Testament, taking the gospel all over the world. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Paul said, I just got handed something. It was a thorn. Well, what does the thorn mean? We don't know. A lot of people guess. We just know three things about it. It was painful. It was physical. It was humiliating. It hurt. It was in his body. And it embarrassed him. This is a guy who had to stand before people. Have you ever had something in your life that was a thorn? It's painful, it's physical, it's embarrassing. So Paul said, I, I just got handed it. And then he said it was to torment him. Now the word torment there means to strike with the closed fist. And some of you, I don't know how many of you have been in fist fights, but if you ever were in a fist fight when you were small, you know that a fist feels different from a slap or a backhand. Fist is just something else. I mean, it has a way of just putting bruises on you. And Paul said that this thorn, whatever it was, just hit him. I think it was chronic in nature. I don't know how many of you have dealt with chronic pain, but if you ever have, you know the difficulty of chronic pain is that it just, just keeps hitting you and it won't go away. It's there when you wake up. It's there when you go to sleep. It's there when you wake up in the middle of the night. And I think that's what Paul was referencing here. He said, it was just handed to me. It was in my body. It was physical. It was humiliating. It just busted me with a fist day and night. And then he said, it was a messenger of Satan. Oh boy, we need to stop here. Messenger, strange word. What do messengers do? Duh, they carry messages. So in other words, he said this thorn was carrying a message from Satan. Well, what do you think that message was? I mean, we've already looked at Eve and Jesus long enough to know what this message was saying. I mean, this message clearly was saying, hey, Paul, aren't you trying to serve God? Aren't you doing all these things for God? And yet in the midst of all this, look at this thing, man. You've got this thing in your body, and it's making you embarrassed, and it's hurting you. If God really loved you, if God was really into what you're doing, he wouldn't let you have this problem. And then next of all, he said it was to keep me from becoming conceited. Because Paul had gotten so many revelations. Well, God had a purpose in it. How many of you would bet with me that Paul didn't figure this out on the first day? I bet this took some time. A lot of times when difficulty is in my life, over time I can see that God had a purpose in it. I don't usually figure that out the first day. So Paul said, it was handed to me. It was a thorn. It was something painful, physical, humiliating. It just beat me with a closed fist. Satan came along with the message that if God loved me, that I, you know, I shouldn't have this problem. But in time, I came to see that God had a purpose, and he didn't want me to get full of myself because he'd given me so many privileges. But of all the thousands of people who attend New Spring, I know that we come from different backgrounds. Some of you are new to faith, and, you, and, and sometimes I think you have the advantage over those of us sometimes who come from traditional religion. For those of us who come from traditional religion, we're saying, well, this is no problem. He just needs to pray, right? I mean, I've watched guys on television, preachers on television say, if, you got, if you're sick, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. Just pray and ask God. And if you give them money, it really does seem to <laughs> kick things up a notch. Well, they'll send me some kind of prayer cloth or water from the Dead Sea or something. <laughs> just pray. That's all you got to do. If you have enough faith, God will heal you of any problem. You'll be healthy, wealthy, wise. So Paul, I mean, after all, I mean, Paul wrote most of the verses of the New Testament on prayer. So all you got to do is pray, Paul. So Paul did, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, three times I pleaded, begged with the Lord to take it away from me. And just so that we won't mistake, it wasn't that Paul just repeated it three times, God, take it away, God, take it away, God, take it away. That, that's not what he's doing here. It's three seasons of prayer. 
So what is happening is Paul is praying, and he's saying, God, I don't understand why I have this problem. It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem reasonable. But I have this problem. Will you take it away? And then Paul waits, and heaven is silent in all this time. Satan is hitting him, saying, God must not love you very much. And, and yet God doesn't answer, and Paul is thinking, what's going on? So the second time he's saying, okay, I know I'm supposed to be persistent in prayer. And he comes back the second time, and he says, God, I don't know if you heard me the first time, but I want to come back again and ask you to take this problem away from me. And then heaven is silent, and Satan just keeps hitting him. And then a third time, Paul says, God, I'm coming back to you, and I'm asking you to take this problem away. And then finally in answer, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, but he said to me, how many of us stop listening as soon as we hear the word but? Because but means no. I mean, you know, you're a great guy. I'm marrying you. Probably the best thing that ever happened to me, but... Well, why keep listening after that? You ain't going to get her. I mean, what, what does it matter that you have a nice smile and, and, and that your car is clean? I mean, at the end of the day, if she said, but, it's no. There's no sense in listening after that. You're certainly qualified for the job, but I'd love to give it to you, but, man, close your briefcase, put your, put your resume back in your briefcase, close it up, leave the office, move on to the next interview. You know, I I'm sure you pay your bills on time, and if it were up to me, I'd okay this mortgage right now, but oh, you're not going to get the house. Well, I'll listen to what comes after that. Isn't that the way we work? I mean, but means that's your, that's your cue to storm out of the house. That's your cue to say, well, I don't care what you say after that. If you're going to tell me no, then why should I keep listening? And the problem that Mark has is that too many times when I've asked God to do something for me and God says, but I, was, I don't want to listen to any more of this. If you're not going to give me what I want, then I'm checking out. And that's when I become really vulnerable and Satan comes along and says, you know, Mark, you're dead right. Life isn't fair and God doesn't love you and he's not taking good care of you. And you're just going to have to take charge of this thing yourself. And that's when the real disaster starts. You know, we really should listen to God after he says, but. Let's hear the whole saying. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace. Now see that word grace? It is the word charos in Greek, which means gift or gifts. So let's just read it that way. But he said to me, my gifts are sufficient for you. For my power, maybe the best way of saying this, my power works best in weakness. Are you, are you, I hope we get this. Because Paul has a problem, and he's asked God to take it away, and God has says, said no. That is tantamount to saying, Paul, this is never going to be right again in your body. You have a problem that is not going to go away. But my gifts will help you make it through. This whole talk has been about the messages that Satan gets into our heads to lure us into doing stuff that will damage our own lives. This is the most important thing I'm going to say, and if you've missed everything that I've said up to now, this is the most important part of this talk. It is so important to be able to distinguish between the message that you get from God and the message that you get from Satan. 
because Satan is a master of making you believe that he's got your best interests at heart. Isn't it true sometimes that when someone tells us the truth, have you had experiences in your life where a, an adult, if you were a child or a teenager, where someone told you the truth and it would, it's the truth that could help you, but at the moment you didn't want to hear it and you really doubted whether that person had your best interests at heart? Isn't that a fact? Sometimes people tell us things that we want to hear. They don't have our best interests at heart. Sometimes people tell us the truth, and we're, we're led to question it because it's not what we want to hear at the moment. Let me tell you what God sounds like. This thing about it being a broken world, you'll get that from God and from Satan because that's the fact. It is a broken world, and it's not fair. And God will say to you, it's a broken world. And sometimes God will come to you like Paul, and basically what he's going to say is, this will never be right again. The marriage is not going to continue. This part of your body will never be well again. But God will say to you, there are some things that will never be right again. But I will make even the bad things work out for good. And even in the weakness, God is saying, my power works best in your weakness. A perfect world is coming, but in the meantime, I will send my gifts to you to help you make it through. That is what God sounds like. He's honest. And sometimes that's hard to hear, especially when God says it isn't going to be right again. But God says, I love you. A perfect world is coming, and I will send my gifts to help you make it through. Satan sounds like this. It's a broken world. It's God's fault. Take this and you'll be better. Get her and your world will be perfect. Drink this, drink enough of it, and you won't even feel the pain anymore. Shoot this, and you'll just forget about all your problems. Tell this lie and just get out of all your trouble. Satan, it's a broken world. You don't deserve this. You deserve better than this. It's God's fault. Take charge. Get what you want. But the problem with that is, like Eve discovered in the garden, whatever you get is always going to be temporary. Well, that's my message today. You have something within you that is very powerful. If you're able to look at life and say, okay, things aren't right today, maybe they never will be right again in this world, but I'm God's child and I'm going to a place called heaven, and while I'm down here in this broken world, even if I deal with some dysfunction, that will never be right again. I'm going to look for God's gifts, and some of us know what that means because you prayed for God to heal a loved one, and God chose to take that loved one to heaven, but in the meantime, you found his gifts were enough to get you through. For some of you, I know personally, you've been through a broken marriage. You'd have done anything in the world to keep that marriage together. You would have given anything, any possession you've got in this world to hold that marriage together, but he still walked out. But in the midst of all that, you found that God's gifts were there, and because of God's gifts, you made it through. It is such a powerful thing that when Satan comes along with this solicitation to do wrong, when you and I say, buddy, I don't want anything you've got to sell. I get everything I need from God. I'm staying with him. That's powerful. It shoots down missiles. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what we've learned today. Pray that your Holy Spirit will bear this message home and that we'll feel it in a way that will transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Just please listen to me for another minute or two. You could be here today and you say, Mark, I don't know that I have a relationship with God. Do you know, most people, I think, are, are confused about how to have a relationship with God. Most people think you have to go through a church 
or live a better life. I think what we misunderstand in that scenario is that God loves us unconditionally, and he's done everything already for you to have a relationship. I mean, he set the table already. He put his son on the cross. Jesus' blood became a currency to pay for your sins. And God will, he will receive you where you are. God will take you where you are. He won't leave you where he found you. But, you know, the worst mistake we can make is to say, well, I want a relationship with God, so I'm going to get my life all right, tie a bow around it, and hand it to God. Oh, that never works. The only way to have a relationship with God is just to come like you are with all your warts and your flaws and your mistakes and your sins and wicked attitudes. The Bible says God justifies the ungodly. If you feel ungodly, then God can do something for you. If you feel perfect, there's nothing God can do to help you. But if you feel like a sinner, oh, you're the very person God can help. And the Bible just says it's a, a gift. That's why the thief on the cross, after living a horrible life, looked over at Jesus and said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. Would you be open to do that? I'm going to pray a prayer that calls on God, and these aren't magic words. What matters is what you mean. So if you want to pray your own prayer, that's cool. I'm just going to pray a prayer that says a big yes to God, and I'm going to pray it slowly so that if you want to pray it with me, you can mean it in your heart, and you can call out to God. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe you love me unconditionally. I believe your blood was currency that paid for my sins. Today I turn from my old way of living and I receive you and ask you to become my king and my savior. Thank you for forgiving me and making me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen.